be the fulfill- thankful to know that the final song that we sing will be a song of joy because it will be the fulfillment of all hope and expectation that the believer has in you. In this life, Lord, there will be trouble, there will be hardship, there will be difficulty, and as it were, we will sing many different types of songs. But again, Lord, we are thankful to know that the final song we sing will be a song of victory, a song of triumph. For Christ is one and he will return and he will set all things straight, make all things right, wipe away every tear. And we look forward to that day, Lord. And we have the expectation and the promise of that day because we have life in you. And I pray tonight, Lord, that, you, that again, you would help us to see the life that you've given to us, to enjoy, to rejoice in the life that you've given to us, and that we would realize that we have it and we have it in full. So Lord, help us tonight for your glory, for the good of your people, the expansion of your kingdom. We do ask and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're gonna be in John chapter four tonight. We're not gonna read, we're not gonna cover the whole chapter. It's kind of a long one, but most of it is taken up by this um, situation between Jesus and the woman at the well. We're gonna read from chapter four, verses one through 26 tonight, and just notice part of the story of the interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well. So if you can open to John chapter four, and we're going to read verses one, verses 1 through 26. And I just want to read it tonight. I want to jump into it. Um, and I want to notice some things that I pray are encouraging and helpful for us tonight as we consider Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well and then how these truths are so wonderfully extended and applied to us. So John chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 1, we'll read through verse 26 together. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so I think that's just a good place for us to stop for a moment and consider what it is that we see in the text tonight. I was walking the other night and I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I, I doubt very much so that this woman's story and interaction would be written down in the Holy Scripture recorded for people to be able to hear and to refer to for all time until Christ returns. And I think, man, man like what a, I mean, of all the people that Jesus interacted with, we know that not all of his conversations were recorded, but the ones that were recorded were recorded for a purpose and a reason. And I'm thinking about this woman here, unnamed, unknown, but yet what a place that she plays in the history of salvation for us and what a good thing it is for us to be able to read it and be able to, in many ways, to identify with her and to be able to... Um, realize what it is that Christ offers to her and what he offers um, to, to people that come to him. The message of, the, the title of tonight's message is Waters of Worship. Um, waters of Worship. Worship is the central theme, topic, idea of the text. The idea of living waters and Jesus's identity um, are not ends in and of themselves. They are means by which, by having living water and knowing Christ, she might turn into a true worshiper. And that's what Jesus is doing in this conversation. It's a lot like, if a lot of this sounds familiar to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, it should, because there's this one-on-one -on -one interaction. There are these questions that she is asking to him. He's responding to her questions. She, just like Nicodemus, she doesn't really understand and can't really put everything together, at least in our text tonight. But she's growing, and we see Jesus' incredible grace and patience in teaching her divine truths. Even though she can't understand them and completely accept all of that it is that he has to say, he still pursues her with divine truth, knowing that it is divine truth that opens the eyes. And that's what it is that he's doing in her life. I want to set the scene for us. I think it's super helpful. You know, we need to remember that the things that are recorded in Scripture are recorded in Scripture for a reason. Could have just told us Jesus was in Samaria and he had a, a conversation with a woman at a well. But we see that he's leaving 
You know, he's left Jerusalem. He's, we saw that in chapter 2. That's where he was. The conversation with Nicodemus took place in Jerusalem. He's left Jerusalem. He's on his way to Galilee. But to get to Galilee, he's got to pass through Samaria. And, and just if you guys, just to familiarize yourself, Judea, even though it's like if you look at a map, it's to the south, it's actually higher in elevation. So it'll speak of coming down to Galilee from Jerusalem and Judea. Judea is here. Galilee is here, and Samaria is this region in the middle. And as the woman says, as the text tells us, Jews have no dealings with people of Samaria. They actually had another route that they would take. If they were going from Judea to Galilee or Galilee to Judea, they would go around Samaria so they wouldn't have to, to, to go through it. And the history between the people is it's rich and it's thick, and we won't get into all that tonight, but just to know that there's, they got issues, right? There's conflict there. And um, Jesus tells us, the text tells us, that Jesus is in Samaria. He's in this town called Sychar, and he's having a conversation with this woman at the well. And again, these, these um, details in here are helpful and purposeful for us. And I just want to kind of give us a little bit of a background to help kind of set the scene as we get into this actual conversation that he has. So Sychar is a town that is nestled right in between two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal have a special significance in the history of Israel. Um, that's the place where, in Deuteronomy 11, when, G- when God is telling the Israelites that they're coming out of the wilderness and they're going to go into the promised land, they're going to pass between these two mountains. And they go into the land, and he tells them in Deuteronomy 11, it's not going to be like a land, the land in Egypt. In Egypt, you had to work. You had to work hard. You had to build your homes. You're going to go into a land, and it's not going to be like that. The vineyards are already planted. The house is already built. Like, this place is, it's turnkey, ready. It's, it's move-in ready for them. But there is a problem. The people in the land do not worship Yahweh. And you must know that when you go into the land, they will be there. And you must not allow them to draw your heart away to worship their gods. And in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 11, he says, You must choose to worship the Lord with all your heart. And on Mount Gerizim are going to be the blessings pronounced, and on Mount Ebal are going to be the curses pronounced. And so as they pass through the two mountain ranges, it's it's the point of decision. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship God faithfully, or are you going to allow your heart to be stolen away by the people and worship the false gods? That's the place where Jesus and the woman are having this conversation. Not only that, but it's the place that Jacob had bought a plot of land, as we see in the text. Um, Genesis 33 gives us a story of uh, of Jacob purchasing a plot of land. And that plot of land is called Shechem. And Sychar and Shechem are right near each other. They're in this same valley area. Oddly enough, Shechem is the same place than Genesis 12 when God calls Abram and says, come out of your country into the land of which I'm going to show you. And when he reaches Shechem, God says, this is the land that's going to be yours. It's the land that God promises to Abraham. It's the same plot of land that Jacob buys from Shechem. And that same plot of land is what he gives to Joseph in Genesis um, chapter 30. Not, uh, 48, excuse me, gives to Joseph in chapter 48. 
What's significant about this is that later on in Genesis 49, Jacob, in pronouncing blessings to all of his sons, tells Joseph specifically that from you, the shepherd, the stone of Israel is going to come. And so we have this scene going on where Jacob, who is the head of the nation of Israel, gives the plot of land to Joseph, who is told, through you will come the shepherd of my people. And this is the same plot of land in which Jesus and the woman at the well are having this conversation. I'm to summarize it. I want to put it all together like this. Jesus and the woman at the well are standing at the place promised to Abraham, bought by Jacob, through whom the nation Israel would come, given to Joseph where the shepherd would come, in between the two mountains where one would choose who they would worship, deciding a conversation about worship, what worship is, who true worshipers are, who true worshipers are and how one becomes a true worshiper. Like this, this plot of land in particular has such rich history regarding the proper and true worship of God. And this is the place where Jesus is having this conversation with the woman at the well regarding worship. And how does one become a worshiper? And I think that's helpful and significant for us to realize and to understand. Four things tonight I want for us to see, and we're going to go through these um, one by one, but fairly quickly from the text. And the first is this, is that the waters of worship are extended to the sinner. We see this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well happening, and she is indeed, no doubt, a sinner. And yet he has this conversation with her regarding the topic of worship. I'm reminded that Jesus did not come for the sick, or Jesus came for the sick and not for the healthy. He came for the unrighteous, not for the righteous. We see in verses 7 through 9, so 1 through 6 sets the stage for us. We see in 7 through 9, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Samaritans were considered unclean in the eyes of the Jews. Um, She represents unclean mankind coming face to face with God, which is really, in my mind as I read through this, really the part that stands out the most. Like, forget about all the, the social political lines that Jesus crosses, a Jew talking to a Samaritan, a woman talking to a man. Like, the, the real incredible boundary that's crossed here is that God is talking to a simple human being. That's like the real incredible boundary that's crossed. And we've already seen in John at great length, it's, Jesus has been described as being God in his divine nature. And he's speaking to a sinful woman. And in speaking to her, we see in verses 11 and 12 and 15, including her inability to rightly understand and to interpret Jesus' words. And yet Jesus is patient with the sinner. As he draws her into a conversation. He's, this is God himself speaking with a fallen human being. And, and he's patient with her. And he's engaging in a conversation. 
and answering all of her questions. Just like he did with Nicodemus. He understands, right? He knows our fallen condition. We are slow to understand divine truths. And he's patient. What does Romans 2.4 tell us? That it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, right? We see God's kindness extended to this woman. And it includes specifically her personally. As we see in verses 16 through 18, him engage with her and expose her for who she truly is. And this is what prompts her response in verse 19, you're a prophet. Because he says to her, right, he's having this conversation, go and call your husband and come here. He already knows what this woman has, what her, her condition and what her history, what her past is like. Think of the amount of guilt and shame that must be built up within a person that has been married five times and is now not married to the guy she's shacking up with. I know in our culture that's like not so much a big deal, but in that culture, colossal, huge deal. And he exposes her directly for who she is, generally and vaguely, broadly as a sinner. But go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Right? Just short, sweet, to the point. Um, I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five. <gasps> what? How do you know? And guess what? The man that you're with now is not your husband. You are, in other words, you are currently, willfully living in sin. You know this is a direct violation of the law of God. And yet, what is Jesus doing? He's speaking with her. He's engaging her. He's drawing her in. And he even provides an invitation to come to him, as we will see in the text. So the water of worship are, for, is ex, are extended to sinners. Secondly, the waters of worship impart life. We see this in verses 10, verse 10, and then 13 through 14. They have this conversation about worship around a well, and Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Notice what he says. He's willing. He's desirous to impart living water to those who come to him. She obviously doesn't get it in verse 12. 11 and 12, and then Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of the water, this water of this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Not only will it quench your thirst, but look what it does. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not only will you never be thirsty again, but you will become a well yourself which is wonderful news because wells are stationary and people have to come to the well to get water. But people are mobile and we become wells of water by which we dispense the living water of God through the gospel to those whom God sends us to. And, and again, you think about the way that water is described as, as running water is described in the scripture as being that which can impart life. Another interesting thing about the location of Sychar, this, this place, although it's not right on the Jordan River, it's kind of set off 
to the west. It lies almost smack dab in the middle between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And both of those bodies of water are fed by the Jordan River. But there's a huge difference between the two of them. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with life, full of fish and wildlife. The, sea of Ga- the, the Dead Sea, it's dead. Nothing can survive there. It's like, it's like Jesus is using what's around to say, you can either have living water and be full of life like the Sea of Galilee, or you can remain dead in your sin like the Dead Sea. The difference is that the Sea of Galilee has an outlet of which water can flow out. The Dead Sea has no outlet, so it only accumulates water, but because of all the salt and stuff like that, the only way that the water can leave is through evaporation, and it is consumed with death. It's the same analogy that you will become a spring of living water, not just for you to have life, but for you to become a well yourself to give life, that it would, we would become conduits of living water, salvation in Christ by which we then share the good news of the gospel with others so that they too might come to Christ and receive living water and drink and be satisfied. And again, water, running water has always been pictured in scripture as being something that imparts life think of genesis chapter 2 verse 10 the four rivers flow out of the garden of eden and provide life to the rest of the creation that god has made in revelation 22 1 the river of life flows from god's throne which imparts life to all that it runs to and of course we're reminded of the rock from which living water flowed in Exodus 17, 6, which Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, and that rock was Christ. Living water flows. Living water imparts life. The third thing is that the waters of worship are, um, create, the the waters of worship create true worshipers. And this is really the central issue. What's interesting is that after Jesus exposes her for who she is, her first question and response is regarding worship. Woman said to him, sir, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus responds to her basically with saying, location of worship is not important. The issue at hand is, are you a true worshiper? Have you come to me to drink of living water? And are you satisfied? And do you have that living water welling up within you to impart to other people? True worship, he would describe as being worship of the Father in verse 21. Worship in spirit and truth in verse 23. It's worship that's accomplished by the Father in verse 23. And he would say, because God is spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and truth. The place of worship is unimportant. Your ethnic heritage is unimportant, is what he's telling her. The concern is, do you worship in spirit and truth? Which, to summarize, would mean through Christ alone. Free from man-made religions, ceremonies, rituals, and genealogies. It doesn't matter if you're from Samaria. It doesn't matter if you're from Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you go to Mount Ebal. It doesn't matter if you go to Mount Gerizim. The important thing is, is who are you worshiping? 
And are you worshiping the living God because he has created you to be a true worshiper of him? And he creates true worshipers in the lives of those who come to Christ and drink of him and are satisfied in him. And not only drink and are satisfied, but they themselves are transformed into wells of living water personally. All of this is, I mean, in, in, implied in all of this is the invitation for her to come. And her response, in the fourth point that we'll cover tonight in verse 25 and 26, the waters of worship flow from Christ. He tells her what true worship is, that the Father is seeking people to worship him, that God must be worshiped in spirit and in truth according to who he is, who he is described himself and who God presents him to be truthfully in his word and to worship him in the spirit, having the Holy Spirit, and in the truth of how he presents himself and that the waters of worship flow from Christ. Her response, the woman said, I know you may be a prophet, right? But I know that Messiah is coming, he who is, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Okay, I've heard what you've had to say, but I'm waiting for Messiah, the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us what true worship is really about and what it's really like. Who's really right, the Jews or the Samaritans? And his response, I'm him. The one whom you were speaking with, I'm the Christ. Look no further. Wait no longer. Don't look for any other divine revelation of truth. Don't listen to the words of those who are around you that tell you what true worship is and what it's not. I am God, and I am telling you how one must worship me in order for worship to be acceptable. And the very first thing that a true worshiper must know is that they got to be alive. And, they can, and you can live. You can, you can be a worshiper if you drink from the water that I provide, my, my words and the truth that I impart. So the question remains, what will she do? Will she drink? Will you drink? Have you come to him to drink? Do you have this well of water within you that imparts life? And are, do you, and are you an outlet by which that water can flow out into the lives of others so that they too can come and drink? Do you, come, do you tell people, come, taste and see, drink, that the Lord is good. God himself is standing in the place where the shepherd would come, where one must choose who they are going to love and worship, inviting her and calling her to do so in him. If she comes and accepts, she herself will become a well of living water, a conduit through whom God will call others to come and worship him and become partakers of eternal life, and we are the same. Let's pray. Father, we 
<clears throat> we should never come to the point, Lord, where the, the good news of the gospel and the call to come to you and drink is old. Yes, we have come because you called us, you brought us, you made us, you, you are searching and seeking for people to worship you in spirit and in truth. You create worshipers. You've done that in our lives, those who know you by faith, and we are satisfied in Christ. But Lord, we, I pray that you would continue to create and cultivate a desire within us to, to come, to come back and to drink daily, to find satisfaction and rest for our souls once again every day in you. Augustine said our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. Lord, help us every day to, to do that. And then, Lord, help us, please, to be conduits of that life and that rest to others. Never know who you might call to drink and who would come. And we would be oh so grateful, Lord, to you if you would use us to, to do that. May we be faithful and obedient to you as you call us and send us out to be wells of living water. So thank you, Lord, for tonight and this word that you've given to us all. May we be encouraged by it. May you now receive um, our response of, of song back to you for what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing one last song?